climate change, population increase, land decreasing, we can't continue the old, the old way of farming. We have to change. Plenty of farmers are already dealing with the effects of global warming. One of those effects is the burden of climate anxiety. So how do you manage the stress of a global problem? We have to wake up as farmers. We have to wake up as researchers. We have to wake up as a people to make the difference. Think of yourself. My part that I play in ag is important. That's what we need to tell ourselves. This is Cultivating Resilience, the podcast where farm care starts with self-care. I'm Kay Megan Washington. And I'm Hans Hageman. The topic of this podcast isn't how to solve climate change. It's about how to handle climate change anxiety. How do you deal with something so, so big, so unpredictable, so out of your control? We wanted to see how climate change and climate anxiety are affecting farmers physically and philosophically. So I reached out to someone who thinks really deeply about these issues. My mom's going to be really happy I'm on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Good. That's Switchy R2, owner of Magnetic Fields Farm in Vermont. He's young, but he's got the resume of someone 20 years older. In addition to farming, he's a data engineer, community builder, professional salsa dancer, and seasoned activist for housing, social justice, and environmental issues. A lot of what fuels Witchy comes from his upbringing. Yeah, so I sort of grew up in two different worlds. Grew up between Boston and Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, I had a lot of exposure through my dad to indigenous practices and to agriculture and being able to understand the different agricultural uh, seasons in Puerto Rico and being able to even, you know, go out into the forest and, and scavenge for food. And in, and in Boston, being able to sort of do a lot of community building through government grants. So I kind of lived in these two different worlds for a very long time. We interviewed Witchy in September as he sat cross-legged on his porch, the rush of a stream behind him. All right, this is Bull Creek. That's the name of the brook. And this is the sound of it. So Magnetic Fields Farm is a farm in Athens, Vermont. And we focus on attracting and sustaining queer and BIPOC farming community. And we do it through affordable housing, community land stewardship, and uh, culturally relevant food production. The farm is either big or small, depending on what perspective you're trying to take here. We have five acres of growing field. Two and a half are currently starting to be in production. (laughs) It's a a process. (laughs) Witchy thinks a lot about climate change. And for him, global warming isn't some abstract concept. It's personal. I think it's important to sort of lay the groundwork, though, that in my own family's life, I understand climate change is real and it's here and it's going fast and things are changing fast. I still feel the fact that I cannot be in Puerto Rico, in in the land of my indigenous people, because every year there's climate change, right? There's hurricanes in Puerto Rico, then there's earthquakes. And every year my dad is having to fix the house, to have to apply for FEMA money to fix the house. And you can't thrive like that. You can't survive like that. So for someone like like me who on a day-to-day feels the effect on my future and on the future of people who come after me of systemic problems, we long to be able to have that back. And we long to be able to do it with other people 
who have the same values as we do. Can you tell us more about climate, its impact both on your farm, what you think the general impact of climate is on on the farmers that you know? So I have a habit of looking at the climate models, or at least a report, a summary, (laughs) a summary of what's happening in Vermont. And in Vermont, what I am seeing is that we've already warmed in the last, you know, 40 to 50 years. Our winters are three degrees warmer and our summers are two degrees warmer. It means that we're going to have a later frost and an earlier summer. And it means that people who make maple syrup are going to be affected because with an unpredictable last frost and with the last frost coming so early, the trees are not going to have enough time to produce maple. And we're already seeing that. You know, we saw the maple syrup production go down 30%. It's interesting because we're having a lot of droughts. I think for the first time, farmers are really, our wells are drying up. In Vermont, where we're like rivers and mountains and rains, like we are a wet place. So it's for wells to dry up is a thing. And at the same time, we're having heavier rains. In July, we got seven inches of rain or five to seven or something like that in 24 hours. Plants need water to survive and they need consistency. So when there's a drought, we're not going to be able to feed our plants. And when there are floods, our plants are going to mold. I lost so many tomatoes to mold because of how wet it was. People's onions aren't curing in time because it's so wet. Witchy and his husband Ike have had to spend valuable time and energy protecting their harvest from the effects of climate change. For example, this year, we got a grant to build some resilience, to be able to build some drainage pathways for water. So Ike, for many, many hours, was on a tractor building those pathways for the water. And you know what? It uh, panned out. That five to seven inches that we had in those 24 hours, the only time in recent history we've had that much rain was in Hurricane Irene in 2010. And I definitely know a lot of farmers lost a lot of crops. And we lost some crop, but we didn't lose as much. I'm starting to see a lot of our resources are not just going now to like farming and, and, and producing sort of how we used to, but also having to invest in technology and resources to be able to avoid these problems, right? We're creating those drainage pathways on our fields so our fields don't drown. We're having to think about okay, how do we create a super dry, warm place for our onions to dry because they can no longer dry outside under our roof because it's too wet outside? Of course, these concerns aren't unique to Vermont, and the solutions can't be either because climate change doesn't see borders. Are we going to foster sustainable agricultural practices given the fact that this whole world is connected so anything that happens somewhere else is going to affect here? For example, in the summer... The California fires and the Canadian fires were so much that for weeks at a time, we had smoke over our mountains in Vermont. It's a testament to who Witchy is that for him, the most pressing question of climate change isn't what's going to happen to me. It's how can we help everyone else? I think the most important thing to think about when we look at 10 to 20 years is that there's going to be a lot of refugees There's going to be a lot of people escaping coastal cities, escaping places that are below sea level, and people are going to flock to places like Vermont. And we have to think about, in 10 to 20 years, 
what kind of environment are we creating? Are we going to foster enough housing to be able to house people? Are we going to foster enough space to grow food to feed our people? How do, we, how do we build community through food? How do we make sure that people are fed? How do we make sure people are well off uh, in order to build a strong community? What does it look like when people need access to important foods? This, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's scary hearing that. I, and, you know, this podcast is about the stresses and anxieties that come with farming. As you think about those kinds of things, how does that impact you personally? And how do you deal with that, those existential threats on a daily basis? It took me a really long time to learn. And I think in a certain way, I'm still kind of <laughs> trying to learn it. And it's not... I, I can't change the world by myself. We're going to leave with you for a moment, but don't worry, his story isn't over. Let's head south, almost 500 miles from Vermont to Maryland's eastern shore. There's someone else we want you to meet, another farmer, one asking similar questions to Witchy and finding exciting solutions. Her name is Dr. Nadine Burton. Presently, I'm the owner of Talawa Farms. But before Talawa Farms even come about, I am the ethnic crop specialist with the University of Maryland Eastern Shore Extension. There are plenty of people who wear a lot of different hats, but Dr. Burton's the first person I've ever met who wears a lot of different shoes. When I went to, in the classroom, I was going to school in six inches heels and didn't even mind, you know, going into the pig pen or in the chicken coop or in the field with it. I would drive up to school, one of the most well-dressed teacher. But the next second you saw me, I'm in overall and water boots. I'm more comfortable in my water boots than suit. I have to make an effort to look good. And I go overboard to dress up when I'm in a suit, but I just want to walk around in my water wood, my, my straw hats, and, and that's, that's Nadine Burton, that's me. Nadine has a master's and PhD in food science, and her journey to get there is pretty incredible. At 40, I, I registered in College of Agriculture and Education back home, and so I went to school very old. After having all five kids, and my, but my passion was to learn more. And even growing up, working in all these odd agricultural entities. And I told my colleague, after coming from the Women in Ag conference on Friday, I said if there was, I would never ever look at myself and use the word resilient to describe me. But understanding where I'm coming from, that's the word I'll use to describe me. Before Nadine was a researcher in Maryland, she was born and raised in Jamaica. It was there that she developed her love of agriculture and food. You mentioned that you were an immigrant. Did you farm at home? Where did you come here from? I grew up in central Jamaica, Clarendon to be exact. My granddad was a farmer. But I find going behind my granddad was the most... I think that's what put me on this path. Um, when he plants corn, I will plant my corn too. When he plants gungu peas, I plant gungu peas to give me seeds. 
you know, summertime back home in Jamaica. Unlike here, you have parents preparing lunch and all of that. No, there's no lunch prepared for us um, growing in the rural part of the country. So what we will do, we, today I call it foraging. So the oranges, the sugar cane, the mangoes, wherever it's at, nobody would stop you. And I like that, that sense of freedom. I could walk in the backyard. I could slaughter a bird, cut down some green banana. That's curry chicken and green banana. That's big breakfast. I could steam some callaloo and that wouldn't cost me. And I enjoy eating like that. I enjoy eating the food that I grow. As a farmer herself, Nadine feels the urgency of global warming. Climate change, population increase, land decreasing. We as a farmer, we are the one who's going to impact the most. Because when all these changes are happening, it means that we have to come up with new ways to, to produce. We can't continue the old way of farming. We have to change. We have to come up with new ways to grow, to feed ourselves as a people. For Nadine, change starts with reevaluating her farming practices. With climate change, I have a role to play. What my role is going to be? Am I going to dump nitrogen and phosphorus like, I, like my four parents in the soil? That I'm contributing to global warming. I'm contributing to climate change. Now, I have to look at how I farm. Agriculture is known to have the highest runoff of nitrogen and, and phosphorus in our water bodies. So today, with all the impact that we are getting, with our weather flip-flopping, going up and down, what can I do different? This is one way to harness climate anxiety, by focusing on what's under your control, Doing something to help the cause, however small, gets you out of your head. As a farmer, this could mean researching and adopting eco-friendly practices. We have to wake up as farmers. We have to wake up as researchers. We have to wake up as a people to make the difference. Think of yourself. My part that I play in ag is important. That's what we need to tell ourselves. But there's another way that Nadine approaches climate change because her operation, Talawa, isn't your typical farm. I started Talawa after getting this position here at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore as a pilot farm. So being a farmer, it can be very tricky for people to sell you ideas. So how is it so good and you're not doing it, you know? So Talawa was just basically to show people, show farmer that this does work. So... Um, Kalalu, sorrel, water leaves, cassava, jute. Those are just some of the crops that we, we grow. These crops aren't traditionally grown in Maryland, but it's part of Talawa's mission to make them available to the Eastern Shore's diverse population. There was a picture behind our dining table back home in Jamaica. Agriculture is a way of life. And I said, if you can't feed yourself as a people... You're not as strong as you seems. And so the University of Maryland Eastern Shore is very, very diverse. 23% of this population are immigrants like myself. One of my drive is to ensure that 
there are enough safe food for people. And because I'm an immigrant, having that understanding that if we as a people not having the food of preference, we are considered food insecure. These foods are known as specialty crops or specialty ethnic crops. So the ethnic specialty crop that I research are basically crops that can be grown here and they are economically viable for farmers to incorporate in their farming system. So one, I'm looking to satisfy the demand for locally grown ethnic crop. Crops that are not commonly grown within this region, crops that our migrants or different ethnic groups are accustomed to. Earlier, I said um, we have 23% migrant. And one of the things we as migrants look forward to is our culture of food. Those are the things we miss. Um, We can't take our music with us. We can't take our food with us. And I just need to look into the university and um, see what type of groups we have and then look at what type of food that can be grown here to satisfy that need because we are such a diversified group of people. Let our farms look like our population. This practice of growing different crops to feed a diasporic population is something that Wichi is also doing, although he has a different name for it. The other piece that you talked about, culturally relevant food, was that the, the term that you used? Can you tell me more about that? I struggle with the term culturally relevant because it's like, okay, what are you deeming relevant? Like, who are you prioritizing here? But yeah, I think for me, culturally relevant food production is about producing food that tastes like home. It's bringing that culture and it's bringing that cultural identity to have a little piece of home in a rural community. So for me, that means sofrito. So sofrito is a vegetable-based broad starter used in basically almost everything that's uh, Latino Caribbean. And a crop doesn't have to come as far as Puerto Rico or Jamaica to bring the taste of home to someone. Ike's family has a lot of history growing berries. So we have a big patch that we've sort of cultured over the year to have the right amount of micronutrients and acidity level to be able to sustain a berry patch. And just this year, he brought a gooseberry bush from his great-great-grandmother's patch in Brooklyn. So it was passed down and didn't come directly from Brooklyn, but it's it's a child of of that ancestor (laughs) gooseberry. One benefit of growing culturally relevant foods is that it removes the need to transport those foods long distances, which reduces carbon emissions. One of the things that, for example, is really difficult to grow is something called recao, which is a, an indigenous type of coriander. Different countries will call it um, culantro, so it'll, it'll depend. That is very, very, very difficult to grow, and hardly anybody sells it. There's like one neighborhood in Boston that you can go to to acquire that, and it's also like, you know, they ship it from somewhere, so it's not as fresh. So the fact that I'm able to grow recao and put it in the sofrito, and all of a sudden I'm able to share sofrito with other folks, like think about how that changes the life of Puerto Ricans in the area. 
So when we said local, we are eating local. Anything that can grow here, they want to grow it as a group of farmers. That's where we are heading. We take um, food security very seriously and we are very prideful. If you say grown in Maryland, by Maryland, people will stop and pay attention. Another benefit of specialty crops is that they can provide farmers with financial protection from the threat of crop loss due to climate change. My belief is it's good to diversify. So just for economic security, when, when one crop fails, you capitalize on the other. Not everything will fail at once, you know, so diversify your crop offerings. Raising specialty crops can also help you diversify your growing practices, which can further ensure against unpredictable weather. So my job is to study these crops, educate the farmers about them, come up with different farming practices, whether it's going to be sustainable, organic, hay bale gardening, hydroponics, aeroponics, but come up with ways so farmers can grow alternatively. So not that you're going to go and have 10 acres of land to make money. I am showing farmers what you can do with a quarter acre. I'm showing farmers what you can do with a 30 by 50 high tunnel. Dr. Ravidon in Virginia, he grew ginger and he grew ginger in bags and I like that. And I model what he did and combine it with Dr. Lurleen Marsh from the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And so last year, we harvest almost 400 pounds of ginger. Grown here in Maryland? Yeah. Goodness. Yes, in bags. And um, we have, I think it was close to 200 pounds of turmeric. And these specialty crops are prime candidates for value-added agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for the folks who may not be familiar? So uh, value-added, simple put, is converting what you have into another product with a longer shelf life. So for example, this is a bottle of wine. This is Aronia wine. If you harvest your Arona and you didn't sell it on the same week, then you have to throw it out. So value-added prevent that waste. You use your Arona to make wine. And this wine was made 2019. So if you make all your wines, you'll be making little money over the year. You reduce waste and you also increase your income. This is turmeric powder. So we um, convert the fresh turmeric, we freeze dry, ground it, and that's it. And this is our ginger. And so you can increase your farm income because one pound of ginger can give you two small bottles. You know, it takes more labor, but you will still have money coming in at a later date. Also, because we are in this climate zone, value added is where your money comes in like this time of year when you're not out there on farming. So if you have high production during your growing season, one of my advice to the farmers is convert it to value. Make jams, make drink. We make ibiscus drink, ibiscus jam, ibiscus wine, ibiscus tea. We do, we do a number of things here at the demonstration farm. 
These traits aren't unique to specialty ethnic crops, but they do highlight another way to manage your climate anxiety. Take steps to mitigate uncertainty. The weather events of a changed climate are unpredictable, but diversified and value-added crops can protect you from taking an unexpected financial hit and give you one less thing to worry about. Dr. Burton recommends experimenting with new plants and growing techniques. With specialty crops, there's no need to rush. Take your time. Grow and then select the one you'll feel more comfortable with growing. No pressure is put on you. So take your time and start small. And every year you keep adding. Wichi is learning that patience with his sofrito. Our lessons learned uh, from talking to other community members and understanding uh, farming processes is take it slow. Slow and steady. But this is our first year and we already made 58 ounce jars. I think that's great for the first year. You know, imagine what we can have in five years. Imagine being able to have, go to the grocery store and be able to buy homemade sofrito with fresh ingredients grown by your neighbor. That community that Wichi is building, one jar of sofrito at a time, is key to how he combats climate change and how he deals with climate anxiety. Remember where we left Wichi earlier? There's actually more to his answer. It took me a really long time to learn. And I think in a certain way, I'm still kind of (laughs) trying to learn it. I can't change the world by myself. And I can't pretend to know what kind of change an impact I will have. What I do think is that I can go through the trouble to lay out some pathways for things that I think could help. And I'm not just talking about the farm. I'm also talking about community resilience. A quick shout out to Monica White from UW-Madison who wrote about community resilience as a way to build stronger communities, to be able to sustain and to protect itself from the impacts of these systemic oppression, whether it be you know, from our government or the climate. I'm part of the local weather emergency committee here in Athens. We talk about, okay, let's talk to the farms around. If we get flooded and we get, and our bridges go out, we have no access to the outside world. We need to make sure that our people are fed, that our people are sheltered. So let's talk to the farms in town. Let's talk to the church to see if we can have the shelter there. So I think for me, the vision of like, how do I personally deal with this existential crisis is that I do what I can to look out for others because by looking out for others is the way that me and those that come after me will survive and hopefully thrive. Nadine's community focus is also what drives her in the face of uncertainty. What keeps me going is I can make a change. As long as there is life, I can touch somebody's life, you know, and I can make a change. I don't want to just be here as a space holder or a pace holder. I want to contribute. The only way I can do that is being a farmer, educating other farmers. I think that's my gift and I don't want to be selfish with it. Specialty ethnic crops, culturally relevant foods, these aren't the be-all, end-all solution to climate change. 
but they're an example of how you, as a farmer, can shrink the problem down to a manageable size because it's not a one-person job. It can feel like that sometimes, especially when governments and corporations don't acknowledge their role in curbing emissions or when people can't agree whether climate change exists at all. It can feel like it's too big and there's nothing you can do. But it's not your job to do it all. It's your job to do your part, and if you can, to help others do theirs. Building community not only gives us the power to challenge the big drivers of global warming, but the support to keep fighting when times are dark. Climate change is a global issue, but climate anxiety is a local one. The more you can focus on the things you can control, protect against uncertainty, and harness your energy to build community, the stronger you'll be. And this philosophy of communal support is baked into everything which he does, including the name of his farm. Why magnetic fields? <laughs> Why the name? Yes. Well, it took a while to get there, but definitely talking about that attraction and sustainable attraction, right? It's not just attract here, okay, fend for yourself. No, no, it's come here, great, let's support each other. Oh, here's a problem, let's solve it together. We'd like to thank Wichiar2 and Dr. Nadine Burton for their time and for their commitment to their communities and the earth we share. Cultivating Resilience is a podcast from the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network. Your hosts are me, Hans Hageman, and Kay Megan Washington. Writing and production for this show is by Andrew Gannam, with sound mixing and editing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Until next time, stay grounded. I love playing in the dirt and I love being in the sun. I am definitely like in some short shorts with my shirt off, just playing in the dirt. That's just like my favorite, that's my favorite activity. <laughs>